You are listening to the podcast When Life Gives You Lemons, presented by me, Emma Levy. Having worked with elite athletes for most of my career, it's always intrigued me that a significant number of high-performing individuals have encountered some form of adversity earlier in their lifetime. My fascination into this grew when I had my own brush with adversity, when I was diagnosed with breast cancer in May 2020, in the midst of the global pandemic at the age of 36. During this period, I questioned whether it was my positive mindset or something deeper, which enabled me to bounce back and to train and compete for a triathlon just one month following completion of all active cancer treatment. The goal of this podcast is to explore this concept further by meeting a variety of high-performing individuals who have experienced adversity, but who have come back stronger. So today, I'm welcoming Vicky Anstey to the podcast. Vicky is a truly motivational woman. On her website, she is described as a world record holder, adventurer, award-winning entrepreneur, TEDx speaker, mentor, mental skills coach, and athlete. She got to the final stages of Channel 4's hit program, SAS Who Dares Wins. She then went on to row the Pacific in a world record time, and then took on an Arctic ultramarathon, running 230 kilometers in freezing conditions. Wow. <laughs> As you can imagine, there is lots I want to chat about today. So let's get started. Hi, Vicky. Hi, thanks for having me. <laughs> thanks so much for joining us today. Um, I'd like to start at the, at the very beginning. Um, I believe age 40, you had a good job. You're in a 20-year marriage. You probably thought that's where you were going to be for the rest of your life. And then your life changed and started to go down another path. Can you tell us what actually happened? Yeah, I mean, I, my life had ha gone through a couple of changes even before that point. Um, I'd had a big change in career um, in my early 30s. So I actually started out life working in advertising and marketing. Um, in, you know, in the midst of that kind of slightly hedonistic lifestyle, lost my uh, focus on my own health and well-being to some extent. Um, so yeah, I had a bit of an, an epiphany at that stage, I think, um, wanting to reprioritize myself really. And, um, I'd, uh, I'd had a little kind of introduction into the world of fitness. I was pretty reluctant at that stage, but somebody said to me, oh, you need to try this class. It's, um, it's like exercise without doing exercise. So I thought, well, that sounds right up my street. So I went along and it was a bar class and I'd never heard of bar. Still plenty of people have never heard of bar, but it's much more popular now than it's, than it certainly was then. And I just became completely hooked on this incredible method. And it was totally transformative, uh, for me physically and mentally, I think. Um, and after, a couple of years, I decided that I was going to just quit my career and I was going to train as a bar instructor. And I was uh, hugely inspired by the bar scene out in New York, which was massive, where I'd been on, you know, various holidays. Uh, and I just thought it doesn't exist over here in the UK. No one knows about this incredible transformative method. And so uh, yeah, I retrained. I spent a lot of time out in New York doing training. And then I set up my own bar studio uh, in the UK, which was the first of its kind. Um, and I ran that for 12 years. 
um, you know, with a big team, training lots of different instructors. I had to write my own instructor training program because there were no bar instructors. So I, uh, I kind of almost reached burnout, I think, after about three years of teaching 24 classes a week on my own. Um, so, yeah, at the point at which you refer, when I was 40 um, and uh, kind of had this real light bulb moment, I think, uh, you know, that was my life, really. I was running this busy studio with a team of people. Um, and I guess outwardly probably looked like I was thriving, but inwardly I was not. Emotionally, I was not. And I was very unhappy in my marriage, um, felt very limited by it, quite controlled. And uh, I didn't feel that I, I had, you know, I... I was in control of my own life. I wasn't holding the reins of my own life or in fact my business. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, yeah, I don't know if I can even tell you what single event sparked that decision to leave, but um, I took that call. I just decided, I think, it, I think there was something about kind of nearly turning 40 and I was like, holy shit, is this what the rest of my life is, is gonna be? Uh, is, you know, is there nothing else out there for me? Is this really fulfilling? Am I truly happy? And, um, and I think because over the years I'd sort of become physically stronger, I'd also then found my emotional and mental reserves had increased. And this, um, very limiting controlling relationship that I was in became more and more controlling. <laughs> Um, uh, I think in response to, to my growing inner strength. And so, yeah, kind of reached a point of no return really. And I can imagine facing up to the realization that your marriage has ended can be quite terrifying. Yeah. So was that the beginning of your journey on overcoming your fears? Yeah. I mean, I, I literally had to take a massive leap into the unknown. So I didn't have my own bank account. I mean, a lot of it was, um, Quite shameful to actually have to face up to and deal with and admit to even now um you know I was I was in no way control in control of my life and um yeah so so I really I had no plan I had no idea what I was going to do or how I was going to do it yeah. uh, you had a business I had a I had a business but I didn't really know how that business worked because I wasn't controlling it um and um, yeah, so it was a it was a huge leap of faith. But I think that I've always had a slightly rebellious streak, mm -hmm. and I think the more I heard um, the narrative that I would be nothing on my own and that I didn't know what I was doing, the more that kind of fueled my ambition to find that out for myself. Yeah. So do you think that kind of drove you to be brave? Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think I kind of knew that I just had no alternative no other choice mm. you know the choice was was to do nothing and then you know what essentially what I wasn't changing I was then choosing so that was that was then going to be my choice and I just couldn't reconcile that um and I think sometimes in life you get a thought into your head and it it sort of starts as a tiny seed and then it becomes something much bigger that you just can't get rid of um and 
you know, and I, I was lucky because I had great friends around me and they really supported me and um, were just there watching over me. And, and actually they were the people who encouraged me to um, apply to do Channel 4's SAS Who Does okay. so, so how long after that, after the divorce? Yeah, quite, quite quickly. Well, I wasn't yet divorced. Oh, I wow, literally just quick. left. Okay, um, so months we talked yeah, right. yeah. So how did they encourage you? What actually happened? Um, well, I mean, I, well, so I'd, I'd heard the announcement that um, women were going to be allowed to apply to do the show, yeah. which was the first time. Yeah, fourth series, yeah. Yeah, which that's right. Quite amazing it took four series. I know, I know. Isn't that incredible? <laughs> yeah. It's funny because I, I sort of say that and then I think, God, that is shocking. Mm. Um, anyway, so I think I put something out on my Instagram that said, you know, thank God, you know, the producers have finally come around to... Um, the the necessity to have women as part of this and uh, and then I just was inundated with messages from people saying well are you going to apply then yeah. put your money where your mouth is <laughs> and I was like honestly in my head thinking no way I wouldn't even consider it and then I, I sort of did it almost to shut them up mm -hmm. um, and went through I guess the motions of applications and then suddenly I was in a process and I was doing physical assessments and you know and I guess this is one of the other things <clears throat> that I've really learned in life is that if you just start momentum somewhere mm -hmm. you know you start taking those first steps yeah. suddenly it can turn into something much bigger and then you know before you know it well before I knew it I was in Heathrow Airport um on a flight to Chile with 24 other strangers and it is, know, no idea. It's the first steps, you know, for me, this podcast, yeah. you know, it, it's always, it's a seed in my, in my brain. Yeah. And then I start talking about it and yes. I talked about it for yeah, months. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you and can't then, stop thinking about exactly, it. Exactly. Yeah. And then finally I managed to actually, you know, mm. transition that seed into something tangible. Mm. So I can see how that happened. And the SAS Who Dares Wins, had you watched it previously? Yeah. Did you know the show? Well, I'd watched it and loved it, but for all, all from the comfort of my sofa um thinking oh I could do that or I know I'm not sure about that but you know never actually re really thinking that I would be in the frame or in the arena because only men were allowed to do it so uh yeah it was the most it was really a life-changing experience at that point in my life where I was at that stage um it really showed me in a very condensed period of time what I was capable of it was exactly what I needed at exactly the right time. Yeah, it's so. an amazing show. I I actually started watching it. Um, I was told when I was going through cancer about a female contestant who was a breast cancer survivor. Right. So I started watching it when I was going through treatment, and as you can imagine, I found that that might be Cara. I know her. Maybe, but I found yeah. that really motivating. We go to the same CrossFit. Gym. Really. In fact, she Brilliant. was inspired to do it from watching me. Really. While she was having her cancer treatment. Oh wow. Um, and had to go through her chemotherapy and wear an ice cap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she Cold said she watched me do the ice holes. <laughs> yeah. And she said, I thought to myself, if Vicky can do, if she can do that, yeah. I can sit here with this ice cap on. Amazing. And then that actually spurred her on oh, to wow. apply herself. Yeah, it, it must have been her. So I watched, I watched it and I thought, wow, you know, those challenges, they yeah. are physically and psychologically yeah. grueling. Yes, they are. So I can understand how you prepare physically for that. Yeah. But how do you prepare for that mentally? Well, I mean, I think the situation that I was in in my personal life had a lot to do with that. I had had to grow resilience and um, 
if I'm honest, there were times even during mental interrogation that I would sit there thinking, okay, this is still not as bad as some of the very, very dark moments of my separation. Really? Yeah. I've just realized some people listening might not actually know about the show. Can oh. you just explain, describe what it is? And what yeah. You have to go so, through? um, so it's a, it's a sort of replication of special forces selection condensed into, well, really 11 days. Um, and, uh, yeah, you are basically put through your paces. It's designed to like break down human limits. Um, it's probably the biggest test of of performance against adversity that, um, that you could imagine. It's very, very real. I mean, I know it's a TV program and I sort of went into it with a slight mind of, well, it's just TV. So I probably can kind of outthink this a bit. You can't. I mean, the, the guys who run it are exceptionally good at what they do. And, um, and yeah, that, you know, there were 24 male and female recruits. Um, I was incidentally about 20 years older than some of them. Really? (laughs) Wow. So real, like really, you know, mixed age group. Um, and then you're just basically put through like some of the most punishing mental, physical tasks that that you can imagine. Yeah. Relentlessly. What, What did you find the most challenging tasks? Um, if I'm honest, so, um, I mean, any of the height stuff I found really hard, I had to walk across a, uh, 200 foot ravine on a lat two, three, two or three ladders like slung together and you had to walk across this ladder and squat in the middle <laughs> And if it's not bad enough just to walk oh across they make you and squat I, um, I, you know I well I wore, when I went into it I was absolutely terrified of heights mm. and I actually think that it really helped I don't know whether it's cured my fear of heights but it really helped me to get on top of of that um the water stuff was both good and horrific so there was one scene where I actually truly nearly drowned um <sighs> which was yeah i i've watched i've watched you yeah because before this i thought i want to see some of these challenging things yeah that ladder yeah what i find amazing about it is you're saying you're scared of heights right and i've done like high rope stuff yeah and you know you think oh it looks fine you go up there and however much you think it's going to be fine your legs shake yeah but your legs were fully still Uh, well they didn't feel it at the time i mean the thing is that like you're kind of battling and this is again like where it it gets so interesting about your your kind of your mental um chatter it's like the rationally you know that you're um you're safe so you're roped up the worst thing i mean it would be pretty horrendous but the worst thing that will happen is you'll fall you're not going to fall to your death and actually i had to keep reminding myself rationally that there were four guys there with like maybe 80 years of special forces training between them literally couldn't have been safer, you know? So, however, the skill of it is that you're put into these situations where your irrational brain is kind of overthinking and ruminating and projecting and, and all of that. And that's obviously where the fear comes from and, 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 uh, and, and grows from. So, um, I mean, the ladder thing, same as with the ice holes, actually, um, They'd actually started to kind of single me out a little bit, the the cameramen. They'd clocked that I had this like fear of heights and water, but that I was kind of physically doing quite well on the course, but I had these kind of weak spots. So of course it's TV, right? So then I then I was just aware of having kind of cameras 
in my face uh, while I was maybe watching the other recruits doing some of the exercises. And I was like, oh my God, they've completely clocked yeah, that yeah, I'm yeah. terrified yeah. about doing this. And I really didn't want to be portrayed that way. So I kind of dug in a bit and then I just got really stubborn about it. So so the the ladder walk and the ice holes, I was just, I was literally just like, fuck you. I'm, I am so terrified, but I'm doing this. Yeah. Like there's nothing is going to stop me. Yeah. So it's just, I think that sort of stubborn streak in me, but. Yeah, so it's the same stubborn streak as well. That, yeah, that but I also kind of just had back. an instinct that there was opportunity at, mm. uh, on the other side of that. And I, that's, I, I talk a lot about, um, fear being opportunity in disguise. And, and that's, you know, my experience bears that out. Everything that I've ever done that I have confronted mm -hmm. and had huge fear and anxiety over and really had no idea how it would end has come good and opportunity has come out of it. So I just keep relying on that. Wow. <laughs> and, and then you nearly drowned. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and th did they have to jump in and save you? Yeah. Or? So they, wow. well, actually one of the other recruits was ordered to jump in and, and get me out. So that was pretty horrible. But I mean, I had, I sort of had this fear of, of deep open water. So I'd had this like near drowning incident when I was a child, which I guess probably was fairly traumatic, but, um, it kind of was never really spoken about um, after the event. So it, it basically just left me with just a lack of inclination to ever be in the water. So obviously as a child, I had to learn how to swim, but I would never be diving into a pool or jumping off a boat on a holiday, never really wanting to be in water, certainly not in deep water. Were you scared of deep um, water? So what happens, I actually had some cognitive behavioral therapy before I did the row because of this. Yeah. So what happens is I just get into a panic state. Yeah. So when the, this the drowning incident happened, I was with my sister when we were quite young. And because I panicked because I couldn't swim yeah. and we were suddenly out of our depth, I kind of, I had to pull her underneath to get my head above the water to get air. Yeah. And then she kind of had to do the same back to me, although she's older so she could swim better. Um, and that kind of continues. So I have this just lifelong fear of water kind of closing in around my mouth. Mm. And I literally, I think I, I almost kind of created that reoccurrence of that exact same situation in, in SAS. So I had that panic moment. Yeah, yeah, and then yeah. of course it all floods back into your brain. And it's yeah. like the very thing that you have yeah. the fear about, yeah. you're recreating. It's like a post-traumatic yeah. stress incident, yeah, I suppose, I guess so. isn't it? And I bet the producers kind of knew that that was going to happen. <laughs> yeah, well, they, they certainly like jumped on it after. I mean, I honestly, I got dragged out and I thought, this is over for me now. Yeah. And that's actually all I could think about. I was sort of having this like panic attack and at the same time thinking, I fucked it. Like, it's all <laughs> over. I remember looking at Ant. Middleton across this this reservoir that we were in and him just like staring at me and I was like looking back at him thinking please don't say that I'm I, I'm out you know and he didn't it was I was quite surprised by that and um yeah and then you went to the mental interrogation stages yeah. which is at yeah. the end yeah which just looks horrible yeah it is horrible <laughs> and it is that was certainly the worst part for me um and it was brutally cold and they strip you down um 
and humiliate you. And, and they haven't let you sleep, have they, for a day no, before that? Yeah, exactly. They haven't fed you? No. Like you had an apple? <laughs> we had like, I think we had some nuts or something. So they really restrict your food intake. Um, yeah, huge sleep deprivation. I mean, we'd had, you know, building sleep deprivation anyway throughout because we had to, you know, stay up on night watch and then they'd pull you out at 3 a.m. and make you have a bee sting on the parade yard or something, you know. So your sleep was disrupted throughout the whole thing anyway. But yeah, we'd had... Then we'd been on an escape and evasion just prior to that. So we had been up for a full 24 hours, I think, maybe 36. And um, then, yeah, you're you're kind of bundled into a vehicle and then you're blindfolded and, you're, you know, you have the, these headphones on, which are just hideous, playing like, you know, noises of uh, animals being slaughtered and babies crying and women screaming and nails down a blackboard and white noise and all of that on a loop constantly on a loop uh so that's more stress difficult psychologically yeah yeah i mean it just grinds you down i mean there are reasons why they employ these tactics mm. um and they work they you know it's soul destroying really there's no other word for it i don't think and then you add into that you know the physical decline is one thing but once your mind starts to go and you kind of think you're going crazy or you don't know what time it is or you've got absolutely no reference points you know we had a bag over our heads and um and then you're pulled out and verbally interrogated and again humiliated and asked to strip down or just screamed at you know at times they hit us with you know metal objects and things and and yeah um so you really had to be strong <laughs> yeah and, and you know in the end I that was when I decided to VW at that mm. stage so I think I did about eight hours in interrogation um VW is voluntary withdrawal, withdrawal yeah. yeah and I remember just thinking to myself you know what I have done everything on this course and I'm really proud of myself mm. and I feel like I, I sort of felt like if there was a, you know another physical thing after the mental interrogation maybe I'd have pushed on but I knew that was the last thing and I just I don't know I just kind of thought I think I'm done like and I started to sort of slightly question my sanity a bit and I just thought I just don't I don't think I need to actually put myself at risk um and I and when I came out you have like a psych consult straight afterwards and a a kind of medical um and um the psychiatrist said to me she was she said, I'm really reassured about your mental health because you were consciously able to make that decision. Um, and she said, you know, most people who, who get through selection are broken in some way. And that's why they get through because, you know, they they can switch yeah, yeah, yeah. into what they need to switch into or switch off. Preservation yeah, mode Yeah, somehow. exactly, exactly. And which is Detachment, like, I wonder if you just have to detach. I guess from so, everything. yeah, I think so. So having just come out of your separation, at what point after SAS were you proud of yourself? You know, when did you realise I've just yeah, done really well? I mean, well to be there. honest, it took a while because I think uh, I, I mean, it's 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 a really confronting thing to do something that public and I'd never done any, you know, big TV like that before. Um, you don't know how it's going to be edited. You don't know how you're going to be portrayed. Um, it's quite scary. and And I remember... 
having this really big thing about, you know, when you start to see the first few episodes and it's not like you get to see everything and then they put it on TV. You literally get to see it on TV. You kind of, if you're featuring heavily in an episode, they'll talk you through it. But otherwise it's just, well, tune in at nine o'clock on whatever Sunday night. And um, yeah, so I started to kind of see that they were really focusing on my fears. And, and, and I, and at that point in my life, I'd kind of really just sort of slightly emotionally shut down was just very functional, just kind of getting through stuff, have to be strong, have to be strong, keep going. And, um, and I remember having a hard time dealing with like how much they, they were focusing on, on my fears. Like that was portraying me as a, a weaker person than I think, than I thought I was, or than I was trying to be. And then, and then I kind of just had this breakthrough, I guess, doing press interviews or just talking about it more, realizing that actually that vulnerability mm-hmm. is, the, is the strength yeah. and that that's what people relate to. Mm-hmm. And so I really just started to open myself up to that and realize that it's okay to have fear and it's okay to, you know, have struggle and to be open about that. Um, and that that's what makes you normal and human. And um, there's a great power in that. Mm. And one that most people can relate to. And that's, mm. you know, that's the, that's the thing that I really focus on now in my life. That's what gives me fulfillment is if I can get through to somebody else through some of the experiences that I've had both, you know, the experiences that I have been very emotionally testing for me, but also the things that appear to the outside world to be phenomenal feats of human endurance. You know, I I want to kind of have both um, very much at the forefront of, of everything that I do when I'm sort of when I'm doing keynote speaking or uh, you know whatever I'm doing. So yeah, and they say, don't they, that to get past trauma, we need to face it. Mm. So I wonder if all of that press and everything, it made you realize that actually you needed to face certain aspects that you yeah. hadn't necessarily, yeah. like you said, your vulnerability. Yeah, definitely. So, definitely. And so then <laughs> you, you get back from SAS and yeah. then you decide somehow that you're going to embark on a journey rowing across the Pacific Ocean. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> you achieve a world record in your attempt. Yeah. Obviously. <laughs> <laughs> and um, what strikes me as being amazing about this is that you had a fear of water yeah so why choose rowing well so I was actually at a press event for SAS when someone um said to me do you want to would you want to row an ocean I didn't really know what that meant but I was just (laughs) in this place in my life where I was like all these crazy things I keep saying yes to are massive opportunities doors that are opening to me and for the first time since I was 19 years old I could just say yes to whatever I wanted to and that was just so liberating. Um, and uh, so I just said, yeah. <laughs> and, and, I, and, I, and I also instinctively as part of that decision, um, you know, the fact that I hadn't really overcome my fear of water in the SAS process, mm-hmm. that actually the very thing I was afraid of came right back up in front of me in almost like an exact recreation of the, of the childhood kind of trauma, I just was like, if I agree, if I sign myself up for doing something like this, I am going to have to deal with that. And I just like, I just kind of rationally knew that that was what I had to do. I was going to have to go through a really solid process of understanding that fear, breaking it down, overcoming it, and then doing something that would put me in that place for a really long period of time. 
So I think, again, it's just that kind of stomach streak in me, slightly crazy yeah. uh, <laughs> mentality that I'm like, yeah, let's do it the hard way. Yeah. You know? I, I mean, and I've heard you on Mo Gordat's podcast talk about some of this row. And I must admit, it sounds absolutely brutal. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it, it didn't sound particularly fun. No, uh, no, it wasn't in the end. It should have been. It could have been. Uh, I mean, it was a tricky process because I was actually meant to do it in 2020. Um, and then because of COVID, it was postponed by a year. So the two crew that I was meant to do it with uh, couldn't defer their places the following year. So I basically had to decide whether to ditch the whole thing, which um, is just not really in me. And we had all our sponsorship in place and so many people to kind of let down, I guess, if we didn't go forward for it, didn't go forward with it. So I kind of kept it alive and, um, and, and was really kind of driven to do that because the guy that we were leasing our boat from was one of the, one of the first men to ever row the Pacific. And uh, he's hugely experienced ocean rower. Mm-hmm. Uh, what he doesn't, what Chris doesn't know about ocean rowing is not really not worth knowing. And I was a complete novice. So these two other girls that I was meant to do the original row with were were actually quite experienced rowers. One of them was a rowing coach. They did lots of river rowing. They knew they knew what an ocean rowing boat looked like and how it functioned. I knew nothing about any of this. I was completely reliant on them really to to kind of teach me. And. Um, and so, yeah, when when I had to kind of make that call, um, I phoned Chris and I and I said to him, like, will you, if you'd let me hold on to the boat for another year, I'll find new crew and I'll row under that bridge. And uh, and he believed in me and that, that, like, it actually makes me emotional now. So to have, you know, people like that at various points in your life who actually believe that you've got it in you. Yeah, he had your back. Yeah, and it yeah. just really, it really... Uh, drove me to to make it happen um almost to repay that belief you know yeah so Um, so you had to find new crew yeah yeah so uh with not too much time left um yeah I had to find new crew so I found the first girl who sort of through mutual contacts um and then, so I got to know her a bit over over maybe six months or so. Uh, but we were, of course, in lockdown. So, like, we couldn't just meet up very much. Like, we occasionally got out on the boat, but not a great deal. Uh, we had to do all our courses online on Zoom. So, you know, chart navigation and understanding weather patterns and uh, VHF radio and also all the different things that you actually have to do as, as a sort of mandatory list of requirements to participate in the race and um and then yeah we had a a couple of girls who kind of came and went as as contenders for the third spot but it's a huge amount of commitment and I think um you know they perhaps didn't realize what was actually required and so in the end we were like oh my god how are we going to fill this spot and so Jane had a friend who lived in Dubai um and she was up for it and like hats off to her um, she'd never been in an ocean rowing boat. Um, you know, she was fit enough to do it. She certainly had the kind of mental aptitude for it and she was up for it. And, um, so that was, that was great. And, you know, but that was sort of maybe four months before we actually did it. It's crazy. And so I didn't meet her until we got to San Francisco. I find that amazing. Um, to embark on a challenge with yeah. someone, what must be a real team challenge yeah. and you didn't even meet yeah. that person yeah. until yeah. the very day. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, and I wouldn't recommend that to anyone. <laughs> <laughs> so did it not work out? Um, it was tricky. It was really mm. tricky. I mean, three isn't a good number, but that's kind of no excuse, really. Um, I think we're just we were just very different people, and you know, so it, it quite quickly became a two-one dynamic. Mm. Um, I was very seasick for for like twenty days, and was that a surprise? Um, well, yeah, because you know we hadn't really got out in choppy waters yeah. ever wow. to know whether we would or we wouldn't get seasick. I and mean, you kind mm. of take it for granted that you're going to get seasick, mm. but usually within a few days that will um, dissipate. Mine didn't. Uh, so I actually couldn't keep a single meal down for 20 days. I then had refeeding syndrome for three days after that. What, didn't, what I didn't know that? what that was at the time <laughs> at all. But suddenly I didn't feel sick and I had the appetite to eat. Right. Anything I put in my body came straight back oh up again. Goodness. Because your body just rejects them because, because it's it hasn't gone digested for so, for so long. Yeah. So that was probably my lowest point for me mm-hmm. in terms of like my capacity to yeah. do it but you rode through this didn't you yeah so well you rode, yeah, so right. rowing was kind of the only thing that made me feel better because mm. it's an inner ear balance thing so actually if you're visually and, and mentally focused and physically focused on doing yeah. something um then you know it, it tends tends to relieve the symptoms but as soon as I stopped where did you get the energy from if you weren't I, I, no, I, I, I do not I do not know. I mean, I think I must have absorbed some of the food. So I was trying to mm. eat, but I was throwing pretty much all of it up, including snacks, including water at times. How many hours rowing a day? Uh, so we were rowing either three hours on, three hours off, or yeah. four hours on, two hours off. So, you know, wow. like 12 to 16 hours. And that's through the day and night, isn't yeah. it? So there's yeah. no like, there's no I'm stop. going to bed now. No. So you row an hour with each other crewmate and then an hour on your own. <laughs> then you have three hours to clean yourself up you know because obviously spend most of the time wet drenched um salt water Mm. plays havoc with your skin um to try and eat to use the bathroom which is basically a bucket um to you know deal with any boat um maintenance that needs to you know you have to desalinate your water in order to drink it Mm. and use it to make your food um, you know, obviously the navigation and, yeah. and VHF comms and, and all of that kind of stuff, you know, checking out for vessels nearby and mm. uh, making sure that you're on course, on bearing. Yeah. Um, and, and was then getting sleep. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean it's not much time left, that's really. crazy. Yeah. Were, were you scared? Was it scary? It was scary. Yeah. Mm, um, I can imagine. It, it was scary. I mean, there were times where we actually luckily didn't fully capsize at any time, which is kind of a miracle. <laughs> Um, we got pretty close to it on if a few occasions. If you do, the boats they self-right, don't yeah. they? Yeah, well, they're meant to, but yeah. If you've got your ballast right, so you have lots of, you have your water and obviously all of your food as well that's sort of stored under the deck and that acts right. as ballast um, to right the boat if it does capsize. But, I mean, you wouldn't know until it happened whether mm. it would actually work or not. So you're kind of scared of water. Yeah. You're seasick. Yeah. You're exhausted. Yeah. How did you overcome those fears when you're um, on the boat? I mean, I just, I, I, I'd i worked on this for three years by this point. Yeah. And um, again, that, that kind of stubborn determination in me was just like all the people who were willing us on and we had unbelievable support mm. and had touched people. You know, one of our charities was Inspiring Girls. Yeah. So, uh, and they kind of support 
young girls around the world in underprivileged areas um, to see that they have opportunities that they perhaps don't think are open to them. And so, you know, our whole ethos was about dream big and dare mm. to do things that you don't think you can in life. Yeah. And so the fact that we were all three of us complete novices mm -hmm. attempting this thing for one, trying to get a world record for two. Yeah. And, you know, that the, the whole thing was like, here's proof. Yeah. You can do anything you want if you set your mind to it. Yeah. So there was no way that I was quitting. Yeah. No way. It meant too much to me. There were too many people who had sent heartfelt messages of support, who were following us on social media, mm. donating money to our charitable funds and um yeah it just there was too much at stake yeah. it never crossed my mind amazing I, I've I heard you say that you felt so isolated at points mm. in the row that you were talking to the moon yeah <laughs> I mean do you think you'd got a little bit crazy yeah definitely <laughs> probably and we, you know we definitely hallucinated at times really? um yeah Scary. But, but you know I mean that really was actually the hardest part of the whole mm. thing for me was that feeling of isolation in in what was an already really hostile environment, you can imagine. And on top of the fears that I already had about ever having to actually be in that water, thank mm. God we didn't, none of us got in the water at any point. Yeah. Um, so, um, you know, that that fear never, never became reality, but to be surrounded by it the whole time. Mm. Um, and All encompassing. I, yeah. And you couldn't share those fears with your crewmates because they didn't weren't feel like close it, friends. Yeah. I, you know, there was very much a mentality of like being quite emotionally shut down um, and, you know, that being a bit of a badge of honor. And that's just not me. I'm just not that that person. I wanted to I wanted to be in an environment. Um, you know, maybe I should have better managed my expectations, but I definitely had this ideological idea that we would be a great team and that we would be people who would walk past each other in life later in life and share mm. a look that says we did that amazing yeah. thing together yeah um but you know it was it was very isolating and um yeah very difficult like mm. I I didn't feel safe sharing my fears uh, there were times where <laughs> and maybe maybe I was being a little bit dramatic but there were honestly times where I wanted to jump in the water as opposed to stay on the boat um you know, there was conflict and it was really mm. tricky and there was a lot of like stonewalling and, and I find that really, really tough to, mm. to deal with. I always want to talk things through and like, let's, we get past this. Like we yeah, can just yeah. communicate and, yeah. uh, you know, we're all mm. after the same thing here, you know. Same goal, exactly. Um, but yeah, it was, it was tough and it, you know, it wasn't constantly horrendous yeah I actually have um I took a voice no voice recorder with me mm -hmm. and so I have like three hours of voice recordings wow. which I've had transcribed amazing and it's fascinating it literally yeah. from one day to the next is like okay I think we've turned a corner yeah. I think we have a new level of understanding yeah. and then the next day this is absolutely horrendous we've had an argument about I don't know whatever whatever it was on that given day and no one's speaking to each other and this is awful and well no one's speaking yeah. to me you know yeah, yeah. um and it wasn't a couple of days it was 60 days it was 60 days yeah <laughs> Yeah. And then, and then you get to the end. You've yeah. got your world record. Yeah. And am I right in saying because of COVID, your loved ones couldn't even be there? Right. Yeah. And th that made me sad. Thinking yeah. About and that. we actually were hoping that 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 wouldn't be the case. We thought that people would be able to fly out. Mm. Uh, so, 
I think we had about 10 days to go when we heard that that was not going to be the case. And that was honestly soul destroying. Mm. How did it affect you as a team? Um, I mean, again, it was one of those things that we didn't really talk about. It was just like, okay, let's move on. Really? Yeah. So you were in your own head with yeah. those emotions. Yeah. And that's where I used to talk to the moon. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. In the dark and obviously in the dark, but you yeah. know, um, yeah. And just kind of, that's where I just let it all out and mm. try to kind of process my emotions on my own. And, you know, because I knew that that was the only way of dealing with them and letting them go so that I could mm. then move on to the next day and the next day and the next day. Yeah. I couldn't keep it all kind of bottled in. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I used to spend hours sit, sat there rowing away in the dark, yeah. talking to the moon in my head so, or yeah. sometimes out loud, <laughs> like yeah. a crazy person yeah, in the middle yeah. of an ocean. Exactly. Oh, wow. <laughs> you could like make a film about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're actually having... Uh, so, well, we're hoping that there, there could be a documentary commission. So, oh, yeah. yeah, we've got lots of footage. And uh, oh wow, that, yeah. how honest do you think you and the other two? Well, girls would I be? mean, it needs us to be honest, really. really? Yeah, and do you and think I, they would be? Well, I hope so. And I, I understand we don't speak, but I understand that they are open to uh, to doing it and to being open and honest. Um, I mean, the thing is, I think that the reality is that we'll all have quite different experiences mm -hmm. to talk about yeah. um and different perspectives totally well. i think we will mm. um and you know yeah d totally different perspectives so um and and you know the thing to hold on to is that in spite of it all and we faced a lot of challenges that weren't mm. just about the kind of emotional side of things but you know we got through it and we achieved an amazing thing together so i do hope that at some point we can kind of get some closure on it and yeah. put it to bed and actually just be able to, you know, I am proud any, in any case. I was going to say, do you still celebrate what you did? I do. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, you know, we had, we had a, what I felt to be a truly authentic moment when we stepped off the boat mm -hmm. and we all had a, an embrace. Um, and in fact, there's a great photo of that really powerful photo. Mm. Um, I felt that in that moment that it was very authentic and that we were truly celebrating quite an unbelievable thing that yeah. only the three of us will ever know exactly how, how hard that was and mm. what went into it. Um, but, uh, so was that one of the hardest things you've ever done? Oh, it was without doubt the hardest thing I've ever done. Yeah. 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 But, but it, not for physical reasons, yeah. interestingly. And often I think to myself, I wonder how hard it is, when you haven't got that emotional yeah. element to it and you don't feel that deep, deep loneliness. I mean, two, two months is a really long time to spend kind of pretty much feeling like you're on your own in mm. your own head. Yeah. Um, and did that make it harder physically, I wonder, as well? You know, when we yeah, look at the interaction yeah, of physical... It's hard to almost separate mental. the two. Exactly. Um, I, I have absolutely no intention of rowing another ocean, <laughs> but I sometimes wonder, yeah. like, you know... How hard is it then? Because yeah. I kind of can't, you can't disentangle the two. You know? I, it's Gabor Mate says that there is no mind without body and no body without mind. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's such a fascinating concept. And yeah. I can imagine if you were more stressed on that boat, which, yeah. you know, you yes, were, absolutely. physically, it, yeah. it just makes it even yeah. harder. Yeah. But so you go through this incredible challenge yeah. <laughs> and it's not enough. <laughs> so tell me how then you go, you find yourself on this Arctic marathon. 
Yeah, so I kind of, you know, I ruminated for a really long time about the row and I still I still do do that um, from time to time just because I, I felt like I had acted with integrity but that, you know, sometimes there just are things, experiences in life where you you feel like you did all the right things or everything that you could but yet you still have that kind of nagging doubt. Maybe mm-hmm. you could have done it differently. Maybe there could have been a different outcome. How? What role did I play in that? And and I started to kind of feel this like, um, I, I guess like uh, reluctance to ever be in a team environment again. Mm-hmm. And I think I just thought, I, I can't let that happen. I can't let that become like the subject of my avoidance. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Yeah, I, I kind of recruited a friend uh, who I'd known through through CrossFit and we uh, decided to undertake this Arctic marathon together. So it was 250 kilometers. 250? Yeah. Wow. More than I thought it was 230, which was long enough. Yeah, well, it, it, it varies depending on kind of what the... Um, what the weather's doing and what route you have to take. So I think it was meant to be 230, but I think we actually ended up doing 250. Um, Over how long? Over five days. Uh, Do you sleep? Uh, Not much. (laughs) Um, Do you eat on this one? Yeah. So, I mean, the the truth of it is, you know, the environment is so brutal Mm. and it got to minus 35 at times that you can't stop for more than a few moments without risking frostbite or hypothermia. So you have to keep moving. So you're basically kind of snacking when you can. Um, you know, we had the dehydrated food packs that I'd, I'd also obviously spent two months eating on the, on the ocean, but, um, uh, you know, often you kind of just didn't really feel like food and there would be checkpoints that you could, you know, get into a tent and and make a hot meal. Mm. Um, but most of the time it was just snacking on the move. Um, and they were up to like 18 hour days, some of them running or was there a lot of walking in there? It was mostly walking, snowshoeing. Right. Um, and we were again, not experienced snowshoers with it. We went to, we went to the horse track at Hyde park once (laughs) to try our snowshoes out. And so, yeah, I, I'm not sure whether we even ever really had the ambition that we might be running in our snowshoes. But once we got out there and realized like how, what the terrain was and how hard it was, we, we were pretty much just walking. So it literally was one foot in front of the other mm-hmm. for yeah up to like 18 hours a day wow. yeah so how was that in the hierarchy of your challenges in terms it of was difficulty? it was hard and I think the hardest part of that was actually um it wasn't like you'd get to the end of the day and then you'd be in a lovely comfy warm yeah arctic hut somewhere mm. under blankets you know we were staying in incredibly remote spots uh, where we had to light our own fires mm-hmm. um, and, um, you know, there weren't really washing facilities. Yeah. Um, so, you know, in, in, a, in a sense, the actual physical endeavor itself each day was mm. just like grind, just get through it, just grind, just eat, just drink. Yeah. Um, you know, there were a few confronting moments where there were like some, some of the race participants had to be evacuated and some who we'd met prior to doing it kind of the night before thinking oh my god this guy's absolutely got it nailed he's gonna win it he lives in the alps and he's like he does this all 
day long. And then you realize like how fallible human bodies are. Mm. And, you know, perhaps he'd gone out too hard too soon and he hadn't eaten and he hadn't, you know, taken enough water and ended up with hypothermia. And you're like, oh my God, how yeah. we don't know what we're doing here. Yeah. Um, but uh yeah, we 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 do we did well, we got through it. And um in fact, there were there were probably only about seven women in the whole race. Out of how many? Out of maybe like 30. Okay. And uh, my friend Kate and I came in second place Seriously? To, this, to this other girl. So, <laughs> That's amazing. Um, wow. Well, in, in terms of women, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. v men. So mm. we were pretty proud of ourselves and there were lots of people be. who didn't finish it. Wow. Um, so, yeah, again, and, and I think this is sort of my, 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 um, my thing is like, I only want to undertake things that I really don't have any prior experience in because I really want to prove to people that you can be totally clueless. You do not have to have always been, you know, some kind of Arctic athlete to do something Mm. like that. Yeah. Um, With the right mentality and a bit of training and a bit of gumption. Yeah. And, um, you know, taking care to, keep your body warm and keep your body moving and, mm. you know, plan and prepare. Of course we did all of that, but you know, you really can do anything yeah. you put your mind to. Yeah. I mean, I, I totally get it. So I, like I said, in my introduction, I did a triathlon. Yeah. It was my first triathlon and subsequent to that, I'm always looking for my next challenge. Yeah. So I'm always finding a new fitness challenge yeah. to real like dig my um, teeth into on a on a much smaller scale to what you do <laughs> um, and I recently said to my husband I'm turning 40 next year I want to do something big yeah and um so I get it yeah um but can you explain <laughs> can you try and explain anyway to others why you do jump from challenge to challenge and what kind of drives you to to do that well I mean you know after the row I I was like I'm not going to be one of those people that just has to keep doing challenge after challenge like I'm some kind of addict and, and you know, have to find something new. Um, I mean, I don't think it's so much the uh, that I'm seeking to, to find another challenge. I think it's more that I'm looking to grow and learn and put right things that don't feel right for me. So, you know, in the aftermath of the of the row it was that it was the team thing that really bugged me that really ate away at me and so i felt like i needed to do something to restore my faith mm-hmm. in uh, working with others and and achieving great things with with other people um and um yeah so i think it's kind of you know the, there's an there's an element of obviously wanting a new physical challenge and okay, a focus for training, that kind of thing. But there's also just the notion that, you know, by constantly doing these things and constantly being in situations where I have to make hard choices mm-hmm. against all the the fatigue and the discomfort of that mm-hmm. endeavor and and also potentially in the presence of difficult relationships with others, because mm-hmm. that's actually the hardest thing of all to overcome, then you kind of make everyday existence a bit easier. You kind of you know, you make it more manageable, you make it potentially certain things become kind of trivial. Um, you know, I knew after the row that I couldn't come back and do for work what I'd been doing before, that I wouldn't have the tolerance for it. Um, you know, and, and that's where you start to find new edges. 
and you do grow as a person. And 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 then I think the really important thing, and I remember always saying this to myself through my separation and my divorce, which I found truly um, one of the most stressful times of my life. Mm. Um, you know, I was, I believed this narrative that I knew nothing and I didn't know what I was doing. Um, and I was up against um, a situation of somebody who um, was constantly reminding me of that or trying to demonstrate that he knew everything and was capable of everything. Um, and, you know, I had to really back myself throughout that whole period of time. And I remember I had great support from friends. I couldn't have done it without them. But I remember reminding myself constantly to look back, to think, okay, this time last week, where was I? Have I made progress? Yes, I have. And this might feel like a horrible mess right now. But this time last week, I was in a worse place. So yes, I've made progress. But it's hard to kind of get that perspective sometimes. And I think you, you know, you have to kind of force those structures on yourself mm -hmm. at times in life. You know, I've recently gone through another emotionally difficult period of time. And, you know, you have to give yourself the time to experience the kind of inevitable chemical responses to emotional upset or stress or pressure or whatever it is that, that's happening in your life you have to allow those feelings to flush through you you have I, I really believe that but then you have to also try and find that space and perspective to to kind of process them so that you can let go and you can move forward because you know otherwise we're just pre-programmed aren't we to be like you know, to have that negative bias, to ruminate on things, to obsess over things, to create our own fears that, you know, fear isn't real. Um, it, it, you know, it's a great mind trick and, and it's designed for self-preservation, but actually it doesn't serve that, you know, we, we have evolved far more quickly than, than our brain processes have. You know, we're still kind of thinking about saber-toothed tigers in, in terms of like our fear responses. So a lot of the fears that we think we have are not real. Um, so it's really, it's that kind of mind over matter, reminding yourself, okay, I did that thing, so I can do this thing. It's like having new reference points, growing new yes. edges. And so you're using these challenges mm. to build your resilience mm. to mm. make your normal life yeah. easy. And I still have huge self-doubt mm. all the time about lots of things. I think people, you know, I'm, I really learned when I told you before in the aftermath of the SAS thing, when I suddenly realized, okay, hang on a minute, actually my vulnerability is my strength here. I need to make that as much a focus of anything that I'm publicly uh, saying as the strength piece. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's so important to kind of have those two things in place. Um, so for anyone listening to this, um, you know, who is trying to overcome fears in their life. Mm. Could you give them any, any further advice on how to overcome fears having, having, yeah, like I mean, there are some tools and techniques. So one of the things, so, you know, as I was just saying, like about the kind of the self doubt constantly creeping in, um, I've, I've done some work in the past on inner critic, mm -hmm. um, which is really helpful and I, I had some coaching a number of years ago where I had to create this thing. And I, 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 I do this exercise with people who I take on uh, my trips now through uh, We Are Intrepid. And um, 
you know, you can create a visual representation of your inner critic, have a conversation with that thing. So I created this sort of slightly monstrous looking thing and um, I actually super glued it to the cabin in the boat and took it with me. Um, and so, you know, to create a kind of visual representation of what those inner voices look like mm -hmm. in a way that perhaps you feel, you know, slightly sorry for this horrible looking thing, um, allows you to have a conversation with it, allows you to almost identify where those voices come from, who in your life has said the things that you're telling yourself now. Do you think that's okay? Do you think that's fair? Do you think it's true? And that's the other thing is like focusing on what's what's true, the facts rather than your perception of them. And then, you know, and then you can almost formulate this kind of slightly um, undermining relationship with this thing. So anytime that self-doubt creeps into my head, mm -hmm. I get this thing out and I'm like, fuck you, mate. I can do this. Yeah. You know, you don't get to have those conversations in my head, occupy, occupy my head. That's my space. You know, you get back in, tr in control. So that's a really great technique. Um, it's a bit like the chimp. Is it? Yeah, yeah, very similar. And so many, exactly. And, yeah. So many of these methodologies are, you know, similar to each other. I mean, we're, we are who we are. Like, the, you know, there's only so many things that are new under the sun. And, and um, you know, human beings are... <laughs> Um, centuries, millions of years old or, you know. So, um, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I, I guess in terms of fear, it's kind of breaking it down. It's giving it a name. It's really understanding what the fear is, mm -hmm. what the actual fear is, because our brains are actually able to almost dress up what the real core fear is. Um, and not really until you get to the the crux of that can you address it give it a name, start to break it down, collapse it, um, undermine it, confront it. Um, yeah. I think that is really, really helpful. And I hope that listeners will find that helpful. Are there any other specific strategies that you use, you know, just to, to help with your drive and your motivation with all of um, these things? I think, I mean, I, I do, um, you know, various sort of training workshops and obviously keynote talks and one of my techniques is to um get yourself to a point in life where you are basically ready for anything mm -hmm. I think so many of us kind of sit around waiting for this thing to happen or to come to them that will transform their lives and be the be the thing that they can then put their focus on and 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 strive to achieve mm -hmm. well so what if you flip that and actually you start putting those things into practice right now so that you're potentially ready for anything that falls on your lap. And that's essentially where I was right at the start of this journey for me five years ago with SAS. I was, you know, people will ask me, how did you, how long did it take you to train for SAS? Well, I had like two weeks notice that I was going <laughs> on the show. I was, I consider myself incredibly fortunate that I had got myself physically to a point anyway um, to be able to take advantage of that. And I think we procrastinate about things so much or we are hoping for some huge sign to come down and, and direct us. Well, I think we need to take that control for ourselves and start to kind of, you know, put in the right structures and 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 create momentum for us just to do something. You know, if you have a mind to to do something different in life, just go and have a conversation with somebody who's done something similar. 
that could be the start of that process because suddenly that sparks a thought of, you know, that's exactly what I did when I was randomly asked to row an ocean. I was like, God, I better speak to someone who's done this. And then I did that and I realized that they weren't this necessarily this incredible elite athlete who I would consider to be completely the other end of the scale from myself. I was like, she's a really normal person. There's no rational reason why if she can do that, I can't do that. Yeah. And it just changes your your perspective and your language. And, you know, the, to, even just to start thinking about huge goals going forward, if you believe that you can do something big, start talking about it because that changes your behavior immediately. You know, the very next day you'll be thinking, well, if I was going to do that thing, although it's completely crazy right now, what would I have to be doing right at this moment towards it? And it's suddenly your behaviors just start to change and you've started to create that momentum and you're on your path. And even if you don't reach that ultimate goal, that huge, big, hairy, audacious goal, your behaviors have already started to change and that process is, is as rewarding as anything. Yeah. So it's like what we said earlier about changing, starting to change that seed of thought yeah. to yeah. something tangible. And being okay with failure as well, I think yeah. is a big thing, you know. Yeah. Things often don't happen the way that we want them to or expect them to. Or, you know, sometimes things don't happen within the time frame that you want them to. Um, you know, I had my sights set on doing the Race Across America this summer. And, um, you know, we've uh, we've had a bit of a reset on that and, uh, you know, got a, a great team in place now. We're going to go for the female four record and we're going to do it next year. And there's a part of me that's kind of disappointed because I have a very fuck it, let's do it attitude. Yeah. Um, uh, but you know, it wasn't meant to be this year. It doesn't mean it's not going to happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, things sometimes you just got to shift your expectation so a bit. It's being flexible. That's it. Yeah. Thank you, Vicky. I think that's a great place to end. Um, if people want to know more about you, where can they find you? Uh, yeah. So I have a website, vickyanstey.co.uk. Mm-hmm. Um, I also have a new business that I have recently set up called We Are Intrepid, um, which is designed uh, to respond to uh, the inquiries that I often get after doing my keynote um, talks, which is how can I start my journey into kind of self-discovery and personal growth and undertake Mm -hmm. something similar, but not an ocean row. (laughs) Um, And uh, yeah, so that uh, We're Intrepid is a a sort of philosophy and a community, but Mm -hmm. ultimately we um, coach people in the kind of mental skills and physical um, aptitude to be able to then go into unbelievable environments Amazing. so we have some stunning locations from like the highlands in scotland to mm. uh norway wow. where we're going in march and then uh jordan so it's yeah. either boiling hot freezing yeah. cold wet and miserable mm-hmm. you know really put people through their paces physically but also equip them with the skills the mental skills yeah. to be able to kind of deal with the situations that come up and and actually really feel that they have altered something changed something in their psyche before they go home so great that um, sounds amazing (laughs) i'll check it out good (laughs) um final question if you could go back in time to when things were at their toughest what do you wish you could have told yourself when you were going through it oh uh that makes me feel a little bit emotional i think i would i think i would have given myself a hug Mm. and um, allowed myself to kind of feel the emotions of the time 
and just said it's going to be okay. Yeah. Even amazing things are coming for you. Like it's never too late to make changes in life. Yeah. I was 40 before I started to kind of really find my true path in life. Um, and I think so many people kind of just discount what their potential could be because they're of a certain age. So mm. I think, uh, you know, it doesn't matter what age you are. Yeah. Just make the right choices for yourself and believe in your potential. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Vicky, for your honesty, your vulnerability. Um, I think anyone listening to this honestly can be so inspired to go out there and make some changes. And I'm going to be uh, following your journey onwards to get another world record cycling <laughs> across America. So I really look forward to that. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. We're so excited that the first series of When Life Gives You Lemons is sponsored by Coe's Linen. Coe's supply some of the UK's finest hotels with luxury linens, including bedding, towels and bathrobes. So if you want to feel like you're on holiday or a spa break every day, then I can highly recommend their products. I really love my personalised bathrobe. You know that feeling when you've had a long day at work or a really hard workout. That's when all I want is to have a hot bath, dry myself in my fluffy Coe's towel and then relax on the sofa. And that is when you'll find me in my Coe's bathrobe. Honestly, the most cosy item I've ever owned. All products can be personalised with custom monograms designed by leading interior designer Sophie Patterson. You can find them exclusively online at www.coeslinen.com. Listeners to When Life Gives You Lemons can save 10% with the discount code POD10. You can find a link in the show notes. Do 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 do